So um, tonight I wanted to speak about a, a fairly familiar topic, which is the five hindrances. Um, those of you, of you who've done retreats before have probably heard some variation on this talk, you know, many, many, many times. But um, for me, I know whenever I uh, would hear it, these states, these hindrances are states that are considered to very commonly arise in our practice because they so commonly arise in our lives. Whenever I would hear it, you know, things like sleepiness and restlessness and doubt, I would think, oh, good. You know, it's not just me. This seems to be an intrinsic part of of the practice of, of this kind of inner uh, discovery. But first I want to talk about the context within which we, we look at these states. So one of the great visionary statements of the Buddha was when he said, the mind, that means your mind and my mind, the mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. The mind is shining. It's because of visiting forces that we suffer. These visiting forces are things like greed and hatred and fear and doubt and so on. But the import of that statement is that these forces are visiting. They're not who we actually are. They're not innate or inherent to our being. They come and go. They're adventitious. They arise due to conditions coming together in a certain way. So the implication of that is that if we really knew who we were, in effect, we wouldn't be so identified with what, in effect, are really just visitors. Now, they may visit a lot. They may visit nearly continuously, but still their very nature is that they are just visiting. So I always love this image right from the the first time I heard it. Because right from the first time I heard it, I could just imagine myself sitting happily at home, minding my own business, and hearing a knock at the door. Going up, answering the knock, opening the door, you know, and there's greed, or there's hatred or something. And I say, oh, welcome home. It's all yours. It's like I've forgotten who actually lives there. And then, of course, we so commonly have the opposite tendency to be so ashamed and so frightened and so upset at what has come to visit that we desperately try to close the door, pretend we never heard the knock, um, you know, kind of hold everything we have against that door, only to discover that that visiting force comes in the window or comes down the chimney or something like that. It makes its presence known in some way. So one understanding of part of the skill set of meditation is, first of all, of course, is the discovery. Who actually lives here? If we get underneath all of the habits and the conditioning and the you know, ways we've been trained to think of ourselves and how little um, we've been led to believe we are capable of. And, you know, if we get underneath all of that, the mind is shining. So that's part of it, of course. But a great part of the skill set is knowing what to do when we hear that knock at the door. Because it's going to come. 
you know, it's not an aberrant experience. It's not wrong. It's not a sign of failure. It's just, it's a natural part of this process. So to be able to open the door, to greet the visitor, knowing it's a visitor, not getting confused, not getting misled, having awareness, having um, clarity, mindfulness, having compassion, having some ease of heart. That's the skill set, right in that moment of having heard the knock. Not hoping against hope, it will never come back. <laughs> but knowing how to relate. So in, um, almost a kind of um, a very reductionistic um, take on a very ancient uh, Tibetan practice, I suggested once here in the hall, in the hall that when we hear the knock and we open the door and we see one of these visitors like greed or hatred or fear, something like that, that we invite them in for tea. We keep an eye on them. We don't give them the run of the house. But there's a certain tenderness in that, in that moment. Just, you know, invite them in for tea. Say, okay, I see you, you know, have a cup of tea, you know, it's okay. And somebody didn't like it. Somebody in the group didn't like it. Uh, and they said, well, how about tea to go? And I said, that's okay. Tia goes okay, you know. But that's a little different than hostility, you know, and hatred. Get out of here. You know, so that's an important visionary statement to hold in mind. These forces are just visiting, and we can learn the skill to work with them appropriately and be free, even if they come an awful lot. And the second visionary statement of the Buddhas um, is also something uh, that one hears a lot in various forms, and that's when he said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. Now sometimes, you know, people have a, a fairly mistaken notion that it's kind of depressing and... Um, you know, the Buddhist teaching is really, um, it's just so full of suffering. <laughs> um, I can remember once years ago I was reading uh, the New Yorker magazine <laughs> because there was an article in it on Buddhism. And in the article, um, the author said, according to the Buddha, the purpose of life is to suffer. And I thought, oh, that sounds great. Sign me up for that, you know. <laughs> Like, and of course, it's not what the Buddha taught. You know, I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering. You know, and, and that statement um, is used as a, a teaching in a lot of different ways. First of all, it also, it cuts to the heart of what's essential. You know, people can argue endlessly about metaphysics and worldview and cosmology and, you know, belief systems. But what really matters? in our lives, but the full acknowledgement of the suffering that there is and the ability to come to the end of it. You know, so that's part of the way it's used. Part of the way it's used um, is to use the truth of suffering and the suffering that we go through in a way that, you know, in a way it almost defies a lot of 
of larger conditioning that we get, which is that these things shouldn't be looked at. They shouldn't be named. They shouldn't be experienced. They should be cut off. Others who are suffering should be sort of tucked away. You know, and to say I teach one thing and one thing only that is suffering and the end of suffering brings to light both the suffering that exists and also um, defies the the other mistaken notion, which is that we need to be mired in it. You know, we need to be overcome by it. It's not that in Buddhist teaching, suffering is considered redemptive. You know, the point is not to suffer. But how we relate to joy and pleasure, how we relate to suffering, how we relate to ordinary neutral experience is what frees us. It's what we can bring to bear, how much awareness, how much connection, how much understanding, how much love and compassion. That's what frees us. So then the other way that that statement, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering is used, um, is the way that's most relevant for this, this topic. And that's almost as a kind of grid where we don't look at the experience that comes up for us in terms of right or wrong or good or bad. We look at it in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. So certain forces that arise in our minds, um, wisdom, caring, compassion, mindfulness, are forces that are expressive of and also lead to the end of suffering. And other forces that come up in our minds like greed, hatred, fear, jealousy, rather than seeing them as bad or wrong or worthy of contempt or weak or anything like that, we can see them as suffering, experiences of suffering. Now that would make a big difference for most of us. You know, instead of having that sense of rejection and dislike and um, trying to shun certain things that come up, if we experience these things not as bad but as suffering, we could have a, a much more open-hearted and compassionate relationship to them and to ourselves in the face of them. And just as we transform our relationship to ourselves, with ourselves, so too we transform our relationship to others. You know, what if we saw the world in, in the light of suffering and the end of suffering? It'd be pretty different and quite amazing, actually. You know, so that's the other part of the context. So within that context, uh, classically there are certain tendencies that are said to arise. They visit a fair amount, usually, for most people in meditation practice because they visit a fair amount in life. And they're challenging, not because they're bad and not because they're horrible and not because we're horrible if they visit night and day, but because by their very nature, um, they have a big tendency to pull us in. And when we are lost in them, when we're overcome by these states, they tend to have... um, an ability to distort our perception very strongly. They take us away from the present moment. They bring with them a lot of bias, you know, certain habitual ways of seeing things so that we're, we're pretty stuck. Um, 
again, it's not their arising, even their very frequent arising, which is the problem. The problem is that we don't necessarily know how to relate to them in a way so that we can still be free and be uh, actually deepening our awareness and compassion, even though this is what's coming up. So these five hindrances are um, are very much about this this these tendencies that come up that we are very habituated to that we will see a lot. It would be a big surprise if you haven't seen them already. Um, and that if worked with can really liberate us and can be a model for how we can deal with difficult energies of, of any kind. So the uh, five are grasping or greed or attachment. That's number one. Those are all one thing. Um, the second is aversion, which is anger and fear which in the Buddhist psychology is the same mind state. It's just two different forms of the same state. Anger being the outflowing, expressive, energized form. Um, Fear being the held-in, frozen, imploding form of wanting to strike out against what's happening, make it go away, make it not be there. But it's like the same state in two different forms. So it's grasping, aversion, Sleepiness um, or sluggishness or dullness, sometimes uh, called sloth and torpor. And then the next hindrance is like the energetic opposite, that is restlessness, agitation, worry. And then the last hindrance is doubt, Um, especially in this form it's called uh, speculative doubt. So it's grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Um, grasping has the nature of fixation, of giving us tunnel vision. It's not really the same thing as wanting, um, because, of course, we all want certain things. We have aspirations, and if anything, in a lot of cases, our aspirations uh we would be better served if our aspirations were bigger. You know, if we dared to imagine something bigger and greater for ourselves and for this world. So it's not, when we talk about grasping, it's not that. Um, But more, it has two manifestations. One is a kind of ceaseless wanting where we are fixated, we're obsessed about what we don't have and not what we do have. So we're always kind of looking and perpetually dissatisfied. And it's just that thought, you know, if only, if only I'd brought a different shawl, I'd be enlightened by the end of the retreat. (laughs) If only I brought better socks. Everyone else here has great socks, and I don't. If only, if only, if only. You know, and I think what might have been... the last line of his last poem, Robert Frost wrote... Life is an interminable chain of longing. But why is that? You know, it's, it's such a, a conditioning. It's like we are so taught that we don't have enough and we are not enough and we just have this kind of wanting, wanting, wanting. So that comes up a lot. You know, in practice we do see that a lot. And then the other form of grasping um, is 
not so much being obsessed with what we don't have, but trying to control what we do have in the sense of holding on, not allowing change. And we all know how successful that is. You know, insisting that things and people and objects and experiences not change. So here the the Buddha, um, as he often did, had a very homey kind of example where he said, trying to hold on to that which must inevitably change is like holding on to a revolving wheel. At some point in the cycle, you are bound to get run over. You know, but we hold on. We hold on really tightly, and so we suffer. Um, You know, and to suggest that we not hold on doesn't mean don't enjoy anything. Actually, we enjoy things more when we don't have that kind of fearful um, clinging, you know, trying to insist that, that things stay the same. And the way it often manifests in metta practice, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more, um, it's almost like a combination of, of these two kinds of grasping in that we may be offering someone metta, but then that impatience creeps in. Like, get better, would you? Or, may you be happy in the following ten ways. Um <laughs> Loving-kindness practice is often likened to a practice of generosity. It's like a freely given gift. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. And that's different than, you know, we give somebody a gift and then we kind of hang around like, thank me, would you? Or put it on right away. You know, something like that. And we know the difference internally and how each of those feels. Um... And so we, I find we enter like the terrain of holding on and grasping quite a lot in doing metta practice. It's inevitable, really, because we're talking about relationships, you know. Um, but over time, as we recognize that state, we can achieve both clarity and confidence to be able to distinguish holding on and grasping from the freely given gift of loving kindness, to return to that state of, um, of opening that is metta. You know, and so we, uh, we tend to experience it quite a lot, but it's very useful also to experience it quite a lot in our practice as we, as we come to a greater stabilization of the, the force of metta itself. So then the second uh, hindrance is aversion, and if we take anger as as kind of the, the model of that, there are considered to be a lot of positive attributes of the state of anger. It's energized, for one thing. It's a way we can declare boundaries. We can say no. Um, in uh, kind of the description of personality types in Buddhist teaching, sometimes they say the angry person, um, through the force of that energy, um, often has an ability to cut through, you know, to go beneath surface appearances, uh, maybe to name what no one else wants to look at, you know. Um, Sometimes that angry voice is the most honest voice in the room, just saying, hey, look at that, when no one else wants to look at it. But in the Buddhist psychology, anger is also likened to a forest fire which burns up its own support, which can devastate us. Um... 
And also, like a forest fire, it can burn wild and maybe leave us very, very far from where we want to be, actually. So in some ways, what is talked about, you could almost see as being able to harness that energy without the tremendous destructiveness of the anger. Another aspect of anger, and we see this very clearly in metta practice, is, uh, again, it's like a kind of tunnel vision. It's like if you think of the last time you were really angry at yourself, maybe just bring it up right now, really angry at yourself. You know, who our sense of who we are collapses around that really stupid thing we said or did. Our whole sense of who we will ever be collapses around that really stupid thing we said or did. There's not much sense in that moment of like a bigger picture, you know. I've been using the example um, today in my groups of, let's say you're the kind of person who has the habit of at the end of the day kind of looking back at yourself, at your day, with a kind of like how'd I do today mentality. And let's just say you're the kind of person who tends to focus on the negative, you know, the mistake you made, the thing you did wrong, the really stupid thing you said at lunch. It's like our whole sense of ourselves is that incident. So some part of metta practice is almost like saying to yourself, anything else happened today? You know, just to open, to not be so imprisoned by uh, the force of that distaste or condemnation. But it's not pretending, you know, it's not pretending everything's nice, everything's perfect. You know, as, as I said in the groups, they said it's not like saying, oh, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch? You know, maybe it was a really stupid thing you said at lunch. But that's not all that we are. So that willingness to just open our view, to see beyond the, the tunnel vision, the isolating force of the anger is really what the practice is about. It's not about denial, um, and it's not about pretending, but it's trying to have the biggest view that we can. And so it's an amazing experiment to undertake. It's really like an adventure to try to see as clearly and honestly as we can everything that comes up, to hold it in a certain light. And here too, you know, we probably all have some images of what our experience should be like, and very likely it's not that. When I was first uh, in India practicing meditation, I had this absolute conviction that good meditation meant sitting bathed in brilliant white light. And I don't have any white light. I had knee pain. I had sleepiness. I had uh, some very tumultuous sort of emotional states. I had more sleepiness, you know. And I didn't have white light. Now, what I was going through was very important and absolutely life-changing, but it wasn't enough for me because it didn't match my image of what should be happening, and I was really quite dissatisfied, which is a form of anger. It 
took a kind of reorientation to realize that I was practicing dissatisfaction, in fact, and that what I needed to do was open to what actually was happening rather than holding this almost punishing image of what I thought should be happening and so on. You know, so that's also very um, illuminating and very important to be able to work with. The next hindrance um, is sleepiness, dullness, sluggishness, and that comes up for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes, and especially in a context of an intensive retreat, we're just really tired. You know, people's lives can be overwhelming. They're so busy. There's so much responsibility, and we're moving at such a phenomenal pace. Um, I was teaching somewhere uh, not too long ago where (laughs) the only internet connection was dial-up in the cold, like in a phone booth, you know? And so I was like there with my computer in the freezing cold, and it was so slow. And I, you know, all I could think was, how did I ever live like this? You know, but that's how we are. It's like it's getting faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. You know, and then you come to an experience like a retreat and basically stop and slow down and also realize, wow, I'm really tired. I've been carrying a lot. There's just a a tremendous amount of fatigue. So that's part of the reason people experience it. Sometimes we experience a lot of sleepiness because we have a kind of habit Um, in challenging circumstances to numb out. You know, it's kind of like a little cocoon of delusion. We can wrap ourselves in, it's very comfortable, and you just kind of go sleep, you know, rather than work with whatever. Uh, Sometimes we get really sleepy in meditation or in life, but in meditation, um, because our experience is basically neutral. You know, when our experience is is beautiful and exciting and wonderful. We have the challenge of being with it without grasping, without holding on. And when our experience um, is painful, difficult, challenging, we have the other challenge of being with it without being filled with anger or fear. But when our experience is just kind of neutral, it's sort of even, it's not, not a great high, not a great low, we tend to fall asleep. Because by and large, I think we're not really trained to subtlety. You know, we we depend on intensity to feel alive, and we we look for it, you know, rather than more finely tune our attention so that we have a much stronger sense of connection, even when things are kind of routine or even or ordinary or neutral. And so it's really um, both in the practice of mindfulness and in the practice of loving kindness, it is really a training in attention. And so as, as we are undertaking that, very often we find in those neutral times we just conk out, you know, we just go to sleep. And then there's another reason why sleepiness so often arises, and that has to do with some of the kind of balance that we're working with in the meditative process. 
there are so many different qualities that are being developed as we practice. Some qualities are very calming, soothing, quieting. Uh, they're peaceful. It's about letting go, relinquishing, being at ease. And then other qualities are about taking an interest and connection and you know energy itself and you know things that are much more kind of up. And it's a balancing act, always, in practice. Um, it's often the case, or can be the case, that one side of things is moving along at a, a quicker pace than the other side of things. So we're getting awfully calm, but there's not a lot of energy cooking in that particular phase, that particular time. And so we get calmer and calmer, and often enter um, this zone, which uh, classically is called sinking mind, which I call the ooze. You know, you're just kind of oozing along long enough, and then you go to sleep. It's not uncommon. Now, in mindfulness practice, where we're doing something like being aware of the breath, I find one can actually be in that ooze for a good long time before you realize it. You're sort of oozing along. Um, In loving-kindness practice, it can still happen, but we tend to notice it somewhat more quickly because loving-kindness practice in the active use of the phrases um, will point to how or we will see how the phrases will often get garbled um, when we enter that sort of half-asleep, oozy state. Um, you know, I can remember in Burma sitting and hearing myself say things like, um, may you be filled with suffering, may you be filled with suffering, and I'd go, no, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> may you be free of suffering, that's what I meant to say, or... Once I was sitting there and I heard myself say, may I go to sleep? May I go to sleep? No, no. And my absolute favorite story about this, well, I think Mark has a good story about this, about some phrases. Maybe he'll tell you tomorrow. Um, But my absolute favorite story about that is from a friend of mine who's from Switzerland who was sitting here doing loving kindness. And because he's from Switzerland, English is actually, I think, his fourth language. And the phrases he was using were something like, may I be healthy and well, may I live with ease. And he heard himself repeating, may I be wealthy in hell, and may I live with eels. And he just kept saying it, you know, for a while. And then he thought, that sounds funny. So he flipped back through the languages and realized what he'd been repeating. You know, but that happens too. So, you know, sleepiness or sloth, sloth and torpor can come up in our practice for any of these reasons and more. And then there is uh, restlessness, which energetically is the opposite. Sometimes we have a lot of energy cooking, a lot of interest, a lot of excitement, a lot of enthusiasm, but not as much calm or tranquility or peace that's happening at the same time. And so we get more agitated, we get more uh, restless. Sometimes that manifests 
quite physically, people feel just an unbelievable amount of energy moving through their bodies. And they feel like they cannot sit still. I have a friend who was sitting in um, um, a meditation center in Sri Lanka a long time ago. And um, from her description, the room was about this size of a room. And she was the only one in the room. And she sat down on her cushion, let's just say in that corner. And like four minutes later, she was so restless. She had to get up, move her cushion all the way to the back corner, sit down, sat down for like four or five minutes, couldn't bear it, got up, would move. I think she sat in like every spot in the hall. You know, it's like she just could not sit still. There was so much energy. And sometimes that restlessness is not necessarily manifesting so much physically, but it's really manifesting um, mentally, emotionally. So sometimes it thrusts our minds into the future and we plan and 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 plan. Often the same thing, you know, over and over and over and over again. Um, I can remember when I was sitting in India uh, way back when and I became convinced that I was going to live in India for the rest of my life. And as I would sit, I would, in those days, it was quite difficult to get an extended visa. So as I would sit, I would think, okay, where am I going to get my visa? And I think, okay, next year, when I need a visa extension, I'll go over there because that place is very close and they'll be very sympathetic to Buddhist meditators. And the year after that, when I need a visa, I'll go over there because that place is really remote and no one ever goes there. So they're bound to give me a visa. And then the year after that, when I need a visa extension, I'll go over there because I heard those people are really corrupt and I'll bribe them. And then the bell would ring and that would be the end of the sitting and I'd come back and I'd have to do it all over again. And I finally, I did two things that were very useful for me in that uh, pattern. One was I said to myself, what are you feeling right now? which brought me, you know, right to the moment, to my body, away from kind of the travelogue of India, and a, a realization of how frightened I was, how unsure I was, I was going to get what I wanted. Um, it, was, it was a much more, in a way, it was a much more honest experience. So, you know, to move out of the kind of repetitive, obsessive thinking, like, what am I feeling right now? And the other thing I did, which was very useful, was I said to myself, you're not even really in India while you're in India. All you're doing is planning about how to stay in India while you're in India. Why not be in India while you're in India? And that, of course, proved to be a very useful piece of advice because as life unfolded, much to my surprise, I didn't end up spending the rest of my life in India, you know, at all. And... I feel like I can look back at those years as a time very fully lived, you know, rather than just uh, continually enmeshed in planning about how to keep it, you know, and so I'm very grateful for that. And sometimes the restlessness um, in its mental manifestation is not so much about the future, it's about the past. And especially in loving-kindness practice, you know, in both practices really, but but certainly in this practice um, where we are 
purifying the heart and uh, inclining the mind and heart toward connection, toward care, um, toward a kind of harmony, um, a sense of community. You know, so much comes up where we remember things we've done that we regret or things that we've said that we regret or times we didn't say anything that we really regret. And, you know, there's there's a fair amount of that inevitably that arises in one's practice. Um, you know, and it's not wrong and it's not bad, but you also don't want to get mired in it. Um, there's a distinction that's often made in the Buddhist psychology or can be made in the Buddhist psychology between the force, we might call it remorse, and the force of guilt. Remorse being a real comprehension of maybe the pain we've caused or the disharmony, and feeling the pain of it, being able to let go of that in a way that we can move on with some determination, you know, not to act in that way again. So um, there's a beautiful statement by the Buddha where he said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And sometimes in these recollections, that's really what we feel is how little we loved ourselves or how little we thought we could do or, you know, what we settled for or something like that. And it's painful. It's really quite painful. But we can hold it in a context of understanding and really go on. Or we can get stuck there. And getting stuck there is more what we would call guilt, where we go over and over and over and over what we did or what we said or what we didn't do. And it's really a kind of lacerating self-hatred where we um, end up exhausted and debilitated and we don't have the energy to move on with the determination to be different. And the story I usually tell about that has to do with um, my friend, my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, where um, we went to Burma together one year to practice. And the way... um, the meetings or the interviews happened in Burma would be that um, the teacher, whose name was Saira Upandita, was sort of in front of the room, you know, like a living room kind of size room. He'd be in front of the room, and you'd go up and sit in front of him and describe your practice. And while you were doing that, the next person who was going to come up would be sitting in the back of the room, so they would hear everything you said, you know. Um, And... That's sort of how the rotation went. And Joseph was right in front of me for three months. So every day I got to hear, six days a week, I got to hear what was going on with him, which was also was like watching TV or something. It was very enjoyable. <laughs> so one day um, Joseph was, was there, you know, having his interview with Upandita, and I was waiting in the back of the room. And I could tell even from his tone of voice that he was feeling kind of down, you know, so... Uh, Joseph described to Saida Upandita, he said, you know, I'm feeling um, very sad and, you know, full of regret. I can remember this thing I did. Um, By then it was like 25 years before, 30 years before, something like that. So he said, I remember this thing I did, you know, like 25 years ago that was really very harmful. And um, I'm filled with pain over that. Uh, memory and and Upandita in response said something very similar to what I said. You know, we can feel the pain of that, but then we can let it go and we can move on. You don't have to be stuck in guilt and identification as though you were only that 
act, you know, things like that. But the whole time I was sitting in the back of the room and I was thinking, I wonder what Joseph did. <laughs> no, it sounds really terrible. He must have been really young when he did that. I wonder what it was. And, you know, uh, but I couldn't ask him because we were on this silent retreat. So <laughs> weeks and months went by. And we left Burma together, and we went to Thailand that night. We were having dinner in Bangkok. And I think it was that very night, I sort of leaned over the table and I said, by the way, <laughs> you know, like two and a half months ago when you were, <laughs> we were in Burma and you were saying this to Upandita and you sounded so, you know, so down. Like, what had, what had you done? And he described this time, he was like 16 years old and um, a... a young woman was turning 16, you know, in his class, and she was having a sweet 16 party, and he didn't feel like going, so he didn't go. And then it turned out not many people went, and she was, you know, just devastated. So, like, 30 years later, out of nowhere, the pain of that came back. So I told that story once. Joseph and I were teaching together in California, um, at uh, Spirit Rock Center, and uh, it happened to be my birthday, and I was, you know, talking about the hindrances, and I told that story. And after the talk, the staff of the of the center gave me a birthday party, and Joseph came, and he said, "I didn't really feel like coming. <laughs> I'm really tired, but I figured in 30 years, you know, I'll be sitting happily somewhere, and it'll all come back." Uh, I didn't come. So I thought that was a pretty good resolution to the whole thing. But really, these things come up. They come up for everybody, you know, and, and it's a very delicate but tremendously liberating process of being able to be with that pain, not being stuck in it, not going into the spiral of like intense restlessness and agitation, you know, and, and being able to go on. So then the last of the hindrances, we've got grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness. Um, the last is doubt. And doubt um, is a very delicate thing also in the Buddhist teaching. There's a way in which doubt is very highly prized, a certain kind of doubt. Um, here's the Buddha himself saying, don't believe anything. Don't believe anything just because I said it. Don't believe anything because a great elder has said it. Don't believe anything because you've read it in a sacred text. He said, put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. Don't believe anything. Question everything. Investigate, wonder. Put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And I often think about this, you know, and I think it's kind of a breathtaking sense of human potential. See for yourself what's true. You can do that. You know, here are some tools. Here are some things to explore. But you can do that. You can know the truth for yourself. But the, the key aspect of that um, phrase is put it into practice. We have to, you know, not stand back and not be aloof and uh, not be kind of stuck in our own opinions or point of view, we have to be willing to try something, to experiment fully, honestly, you know, to see whether um, it's useful for us or not, to see what the results might be or not. So that kind of doubt is more like questioning, wondering, 
um, investigating, and it's built on a very strong foundation of confidence in our own ability to see the truth. There's another kind of doubt, which is called speculative doubt, which is more like that standing aloof. Um, these days, I guess we'd call it being cynical, you know, just like not coming forth, not engaging, not giving something an honest shot, you know, not really trying it out, but just sort of standing back and saying, oh, that's worthless, you know, or it'll never happen. Um, some of that is often a disguised form of fear, of course, you know, where we feel it'll never happen for me, and therefore I'll just stand back and pretend it, it doesn't count, you know, it's not worth having. Um, but in any case, it leaves us really stuck because this kind of doubt, you know, it's not worth doing. Um, it doesn't usually, it doesn't ever probably arrive in our minds. It doesn't knock on the door um, to continue that, that image. It doesn't arrive with a little sign saying, I'm doubt. You know, it usually arrives with a little sign saying, I'm the deepest truth you will ever know. <laughs> and it takes quite a bit of spaciousness for us to be able to say, oh, you know what, that's doubt. You know, not to be so enmeshed, not, not to kind of hear the call of it and say, yes, you know, that's, that's absolutely true. And it's not that it's never true. Sometimes it is true. But sometimes, mostly, we need a process of investigation and exploration to see for ourselves if it's true or not. You know, there's so many doubts that come. This is the wrong practice. I should do that other practice. That practice is faster. Those people are more enlightened. Why am I stuck here? You don't have to work this hard. You know, it's just like there's lots of stuff that comes up, which is really a form of doubt. And it would be interesting, you know, to really look at the heart of a lot of those statements and see how many of them are really ways of saying, I can't do this. You know, this isn't going to work for me. Um, you know, so it's not, again, it's not that doubt is bad or wrong or a horrible thing, but it's so confusing when we get lost in it rather than, say, give something some time, you know, and know we'll evaluate it, we'll assess it, but maybe not in the middle of the process. You know, it's, it's very interesting in doing loving-kindness practice um, to see the um, kind of that tendency to continually evaluate. I can remember being in Burma, doing walking meditation, and feeling, uh, doing loving-kindness, you know, and feeling just, this tremendous amount of pressure and tension and stress, so much so that I just stopped walking and I said to myself, okay, what's going on now? And I realized that I was trying to do the practice and make it work. Like, where's the love? I don't know. Where's Yesterday I had five minutes. You know, today I should have 20. I don't know why it's not here. Was that pure love? Maybe it's not pure love. Maybe it's a very tainted love. Maybe it's really attachment. I don't know. It's just like, you know, and there's so much stress. Instead of just like do the practice, let it work, not make it work. Um, you know, we can be so impatient and we have to let something take its own time. Not forever, you know. It's not that you never say, well, I put it into practice, didn't work for me. I mean, maybe that's true. But not every single second, you know, that you're doing it because then you're not really doing it, right? 
it's just kind of stepping away and judging it and evaluating yourself in the face of it. So um, it's very important to be able to recognize doubt as doubt. And that really in some ways is the essence with all of the hindrances um, to be able to see them for what they are. When we're having a tremendous bout of restlessness or sleepiness, um, not in a, I mean, we can recognize sleepiness when we're half asleep, but, you know, as we're going toward it, <laughs> um, to see grasping for what it is, to know anger and fear for what they are, all of them, to be able to see, oh, this is what's going on right now. Uh, it's like hearing the knock at the door. To remember that these states are visiting. They are impermanent. They can be strong, but they're impermanent. They're arising out of conditions. They come and they go. To have a kind of um, balance in the face of them. It's like, okay, you're visiting. Invite them in for tea or give them tea to go. You know, something like that. Say, okay, this is what's happening right now. And to, you know, have tremendous compassion. Because they're not bad and wrong, and we are not bad and wrong for having them come up. But if we're lost in them, they're terribly painful. And so we can have a kind of compassion uh, when they do arise. And then it's a very different relationship to them. There's certain things we also do, um, particularly to try to bring energy into balance, and they can be very simple. You know, if you're very, very sleepy, open your eyes, maybe stand up, you know, maybe doing walking meditation sometime instead of sitting. Um, you know, and other things we'll, we can talk about tomorrow morning um, in kind of specificity of trying to bring energy more into balance. But the heart of the approach, you know, is to be able to recognize what's going on, to have a balanced relationship to it, and to have compassion for ourselves in in the face of it. You know, in doing loving-kindness practice, um, it might be that, well, in doing any practice, actually, sometimes we have a favorite hindrance, you know, we have something that seems to come up a lot. Sometimes it's just one hindrance. Sometimes they combine together in some sort of strange multiple hindrance attack, you know, mode, and you think, how can you be sleepy and restless at the same time? Somehow I am. Or, you know, how can there be so much desire and so much anger <laughs> all at the same time? But somehow there is. Um, and in doing uh, loving-kindness practice, the first thing um, we might notice is whether we can continue on with the loving-kindness practice or not, depending on how intense the hindrance is. Maybe it's not all that strong. It can be sort of more acknowledged, but then in the background as we continue on, or maybe it's too strong for that. Maybe uh, it's time to turn loving kindness back for ourselves, to ourselves, because we're the ones who are suffering, you know, from whatever is going on. So that might be the next thing that we do. And maybe it's too strong for that. You know, maybe we need to let go of the loving kindness as a formal practice for a while and just open to whatever is happening, you know, the, the doubt or the sleepiness or the restlessness in in the way of mindfulness 
to have a kind of kindness and also uh, clarity in our awareness as we recognize, okay, this is what's going on right now. I need to be with this for a while um, and be mindful of it for a while and then go back to doing the, the loving-kindness practice um, in the more formal sense. So it's not that one is better than the other, but we realize that we have many avenues available to us as we are trying to uh, you know, not reject these things or assume control over them because we will never be able to uh, in that sense, but to really transform our relationship um, to everything that comes and goes in our experience. Okay, so let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.